I am one of the pastors here at whatever. Um, open up to John. Today I want to pray. Um, I'm going to say something kind of bold. I think this is one of those passages that if we can actually hear it, um, if the Holy Spirit can actually open our heart to the truth of it, that it's a life-changing type of passage. Now, I think the word is always a lifetime, life-changing type of passage, but um, I, think, uh, I think the enemy kind of owns us, a lot of us, in um, the place we're going to talk about today. And um, throughout the week, I've realized, as I realized so often lately, is that I can't preach well enough for this to sink into your hearts. I can't preach well enough for, for any of us to actually believe this. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to, like, help us to hear, like, to take off the blinders so that we can hear and that we can see. So I'm going to pray that today, and then uh, we'll get going. Oh, Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you so much that we can come to you so boldly because of the work of Jesus on the cross because of what he has done in us and through us, we can come boldly and just ask and that you hear. God, I pray that that would overwhelm us all today, that the God of the universe that created everything by just speaking a word, hears our prayers. Not only hears them, cares for us because you call us your beloved. So God, as your beloved, as we love you, as your beloved, we cry out today. And God, I pray that today, um, whatever, whatever we brought into this room, that we could let go of whatever sins we brought into this room that we could just repent of and, and what, what, whatever thing that's made us apathetic or just, just more numb to hear what, what you have to say in your word today. God, I pray that you would be with us in those things, that you would burn those things away with your holiness so that we might see, so that we might hear. God, just today I was reading even the Apostle Paul who says that in my weakness is where I find my strength in you, through the tribulations, through the difficulty, through the suffering, that, that in the weakness of all of those things, that's where we find your strength. So God, I pray whatever weakness we brought in this room today would be a reminder of not, not the fact that, that we aren't good enough, but that you are strong enough to overcome all those things and not only overcome them, but grow us into your strength. God, that's what we need today. And so God, in our weakness, be our strength today. God, help us to see what you'd have for each and every individual in this room. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move and stir and grow and change for the sake of your glory, the sake of your name, and the advancement of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, I I usually don't do this because I don't ever know how many of you actually played sports growing up, so I'm not real big on using sports analogies. I'm a sports guy, but like a lot of you didn't, didn't grow up playing sports, so I don't use those a lot. But I know a lot of you have been in some sort of competition at some point in your life, so hopefully you can, hopefully you can re- relate to this. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to imagine something. I want you to actually try to imagine that you're about to play in the biggest game that you've ever played in or will ever play in. Like, for here for a second, I want you to actually picture what that would be like. You've got a game coming up, a competition coming up. It's going to be the biggest thing that you've ever played in or will ever play in in the rest of your life. And not only that, but on, on paper, you know that you, you simply can't win. Like, on paper, like, you always got to play the game, right? But on, on paper, you simply can't win. So have you ever been in a spot in your life that's anywhere even close to that, right? Whether it's sports or music, or speech and debate, or any other competition where at least at some point you felt those nerves, right? The nerves that you're getting ready to compete, you're getting ready to try to win, and, you, and you've had to deal with those nerves. You, you've, had to, you've had to actually try to tamp those nerves down while you're carrying the weight of the moment. Have you ever been in any kind of situation like that in your entire life? 
Maybe it was just even for you. It's like this conversation that you knew you had to have with someone and it was getting to you and you were so nervous and you knew like so much was depending on this conversation and you just knew that it was gonna go bad if you didn't say all the right things. So you go into that conversation carrying all that weight and so nervous, just hoping it's gonna go the way you you hope it's gonna go. You ever been there? Now, we're gonna keep using the game analogy, but whatever that is for you, whatever you felt in that moment, imagine that moment for you. What if you went into that game knowing Listen, knowing you were going to win. The game that felt unwinnable, you went in knowing you were going to win. Listen, not just thinking that you were going to win, but somehow you got a glimpse into the future and you just knew you were going to win the unwinnable game. How do you think that would change how you played? How do you think that would change everything? Wouldn't you go in with just so much more confidence in the game, right? The weight of it? Would not, would not weigh you down. You'd be so much more clear. You'd probably be even so much more focused in some ways, but you'd, you'd just be so much less stiff from the very beginning of the game, from the very beginning of the competition. Not only that, since my daughter is just starting basketball right now, I'll use a basketball analogy for this, but even if you, man, you threw a bad pass or you missed a really bad shot or you just made a really huge mistake or your teammate made a really huge mistake, do you think if I know we are going to win this game, do you think you'd look at that differently? Right? If you've ever played sports, you, you stir, you're still going to hate it when you miss an open shot that you should have hit. Right? You're still going to be like, uh, and frustrated with yourself. But if you knew that that was not going to determine the outcome of the game, if you knew you were going to win, how much quicker do you think you'd let that frustration go and then just move forward because you knew the outcome of the game was already assured? So you could just let it go and move forward. Wouldn't it change the lens that you see it through almost completely? You'd go so much easier on yourself. You'd go so much easier on others and all the failures because in the end, victory was already assured. Knowing that changes virtually every moment. Every moment of that game would be changed. Church, for for those of us that love Jesus, for those of us in this room that that really do want to grow in our faith, through the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows that we really want to go, too often I, I, I see us, including myself at times, I see us treating our sin treating our apathy, treating our worldliness, even, listen, even treating our pursuit of holiness as something that we need to win, right? We got to work hard so that we can defeat this thing and we can win this thing, that our victory in Christ, our victory in our pursuit of holiness and away from sin is somehow determined by how good we are at preventing and avoiding mistakes and failures and how awesome we are at playing the game of holiness, which makes it really rough, Because how many of you in the room would say, I'm really awesome at holiness? I'm just killing holiness right now. But what if we stop stop living as if we were trying to achieve victory in those things and started living out our faith as if we already had victory over those things? This is it. This is the crux of today. We're going to preach the word and we're going to talk through this, but, but what if that actually happened? If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. We've been walking through the Gospel of John for a long time, right? And this week, as Jesus spends his final hours with his disciples before he dies, right? His final moments before he goes to the cross to suffer on all of our sakes, before he's murdered on that cross, he is spending his last moments with his disciples, coaching them, encouraging them, telling them what they need to hear, and he's leaving them with an amazing truth today a truth that still rings true for us 2,000 years later. In Jesus, we already have victory if we'd only just believe it. If we'd only just actually believe it. 
So with that, I'm going to give us a little more context as we go, if you haven't been here. But with that, let's jump into our text today in John 16. We're going to start in John 16, verse 25. John 16, verse 25. We're going to read the first three or four verses. This is Jesus talking. I have said these things, and we'll talk about what these things are in a minute. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus just said, I've been talking to you about these things in figures of speech. So here's what's going on, especially if you haven't been with us. So um, what is happening is Jesus has been telling them, again, mostly in figures of speech, that he's going to die. That he's actually been telling them also in figures of speech that he's going to be resurrected, that he's going to leave them, but then he's going to come back to them, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. And he hasn't been telling them completely plainly in this because they can't understand it yet. Jesus made that clear too. Like they're confused about what he's been talking about and all these figures of speech. But what's been made clear is they have no context right now for a Messiah that's going not only to die, but be resurrected and then return to them and then leave them again as he ascends into heaven. On this side of the cross, everything that Jesus says to us is really clear, right? If we just spent any time with it. But to them on their side of the cross, they don't have a context for that. So Jesus has basically just been preparing them for, for what's to come. He's been pre- preparing them for what they can't understand. And here's what he's been pre- preparing them for. Something terrible, his death. And something amazing, his resurrection. Without being able to tell them directly and plainly because it's just going to confuse them more because they wouldn't understand it yet. So he is saying the time or what he's really saying, the hour. And when Jesus all through the gospel of John says the hour, he's talking about the hour he will be glorified, meaning the time when he's going to die on the cross to pay for our sins and be resurrected in new life so that we also too may have new life in him. That's the hour that he refers to when he says the hour. So he's saying the hour will come when I'm not going to talk to you in figures of speech anymore. When I'm going to speak plainly, a time when you won't even have to go to the Father through me. You can go to the Father yourself. You can go to him directly. You know why? Because you have loved me. And because you love me and have faith in me, the Father loves you. Right? The Father loves you because you have loved me and have faith in me. Now, before we move on, I want to make a couple things clear in that statement that Jesus made. One, Jesus says you're not going to have to go through me, right? But is Jesus still our mediator between God and man? And is he still our advocate sitting at the right hand of the Father declaring our our innocence and holiness to him? Yeah, of course he is, right? Of course he is. So this is not Jesus saying that, that we don't, that he's not our mediator, that he's not our advocate anymore. What he's saying is you, like, you don't have to come to me to get to the Father any longer, right? He's like, the time is coming where you can go directly to the Father. You have access to the Father because of what he's going to do on the cross, So really what they're going to understand later is because Jesus took all of our sin, because Jesus took the wrath of God and gave us his righteousness and holiness, we can come to the Father because there's no longer that bridge between us and the Father anymore because of our sin. It's been exchanged. It's called the great exchange. We exchanged our sin and God's wrath and our guilt for Jesus' holiness, his purity, his blamelessness, his righteousness, so now that we can come directly to the Father. This is what Jesus is trying to tell them. The day that you have to talk to me to understand what's going on with the Father or to talk to the Father, that day is going to end because of the great exchange. Because of the great exchange. 
The second thing we need to make clear is that when Jesus says the Father loves you because you loved me and have faith in me, is not Jesus being a narcissist. I know most of you don't, don't read that and hear it that way, but especially if you're newer to the faith and Jesus says, wait, the Father's not going to love me unless I love Jesus. Yes, that, that's actually right. But it's not Jesus just trying to make it all about him. Here, here's the thing. Jesus is God. Right? He's, he's a man, but he is also God. He is the word of God. Jesus is the I am. And so if you say, I don't love Jesus, but I love the Father, that doesn't work because he is God. Him and the Father is one, are one. And so that's what Jesus has been trying to communicate to the religious leaders all through the Gospel of John when he talks to them. He says to them, listen, if you truly love the Father, you would love me because the Father and I are one. You can't love the Father and not love Jesus. And you can't hate Jesus and love the Father. Those two things cannot go together because Jesus is God and him and the Father are one. So Jesus is just simply making clear to the disciples, this is not a negative thing. He's saying to them, you love me, so have confidence that the Father loves you also. That's really what he's trying to make clear to them. The Father loves you, and soon, meaning after his resurrection, after his hour, you can take all your questions directly to him. You're not going to have to ask me anymore. You can go directly to the Father just as I do. Now, Jesus' statement in verse 28 is one of the most clear things that he said about what's going to happen. It's not perfectly clear, but it's one of the most clear things he's said. So I want us to read it again before we, we talk about it briefly. So turn back to John 16. Let's re- really quickly read verse 28 again. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Now, on our side of the cross, again, what Jesus is saying there is really clear, right? He came from heaven down to earth. He came into the world to save us, to pay for our sins, to do his thing of salvation. And then when that's done, he's going to go back to his father. He's going to leave this world and go back to the father. And that's clear to us. But again, on their side of the the disciples' side of the cross, that's one of the most clear things Jesus said. I came from the Father into the world, right? I came from heaven. That's what he's saying there. That should be clear to them. And I'm going to go back to the Father. They all know where the Father's from. And so I'm going back to the Father. So this has to be pretty clear to them that Jesus is going to die, right? But it's not clear enough from what they've said before and what they're about to say. It's not clear enough for them to claim what they're about to claim. For them to say what they're about to say, it just proves that even though Jesus is being a little bit more clear, this is why Jesus keeps talking to figures of speech, because they're completely confused. Look at at verse 29 in John chapter 16. We'll read through, through verse 31. John 16, 29. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figure, figurative speech. Exclamation point. You see, like they're excited. Oh, now we, now we get it. Verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. And do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I love Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Like question mark at the end, like, do you now believe? Because I just said that. So here's what I think is happening. What I think is happening here is just a classic example of completely missing the point. I think what happened here is the disciples just completely missed the point. Jesus said in our passage last week, and we've kind of already referred to it this week, he said in our passage last week, soon you're not going to have to ask me these questions anymore. Soon you're not going to have to ask me questions anymore. Referring to the fact that after his resurrection, all of these things are going to be clear. 
particularly after the Holy Spirit comes. He's already said the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to remind you of all the things I've said and he's going to make it all clear to you. Jesus has already promised them that. So, so in, this, in this context, he's, he's actually been referring to you won't have to ask me any more questions anymore because, because it's all going to be made clear after all these things happen, right? But did you see what the disciples said? They, they heard that and they said, oh, so now we know we, don't, we, we shouldn't ask you questions anymore because you know all things. Is that what Jesus was saying? Don't ask me any more questions because I know everything and you shouldn't question me? Jesus is not saying don't question me in this moment, but that's what they took out of it. Listen, now we know not to ask you any questions because you know all things. So now that we believe. And so they're completely missing the point. It even seems that they, they took the thing where Jesus said, I came from the Father into the world and I'm leaving the world to go back to the Father, that all of a sudden Jesus just made everything clear with that statement. Now there's some clarity there, right? Again, there is some clarity. Yes, he's affirming to them that he came from heaven into the world and he's leaving the world to go back into heaven. So they got part of it right. So they got the part of Jesus knowing, knowing all things and that Jesus came from God. They got that part right. But it seems to me that they got just about everything else wrong. Church, Jesus is trying to prepare them for something so terrible they can't comprehend it. They just can't comprehend it. They are falsely encouraged here because they think they understand. You saw the exclamation point. They seem so fired up. Oh, we got it. And they're falsely encouraged. They think they understand when they don't. This is why we get the almost incredulous response from Jesus in verse 31 when he says, do you now believe? Like that carries a lot of context, doesn't it? Like all the things that I've done, all the things that I've said, I said this to you that soon you won't have to ask me any questions. I say that I came from the Father and I'm going back to the Father and now all of a sudden everything's clear and you completely believe in me? Now he's already said before this, I know that you love me. He already knows that they love him, but now they claim to believe they claim to get it, and that false sense of confidence, uh, that false sense of faith, they seemed encouraged in that. But the reality is that they're almost completely missing this. And if Jesus let this slide, the, the, the suffering that is coming would just be made all of the worse for them. It would just be made all of the worse. So Jesus necessarily sobers this moment with a dose of reality in verse 32, right? They're encouraged, but he, he's not a wet blanket in this moment, I promise. He's sobering the moment out of necessity. We'll talk about that in a second. Read verse 32 in chapter 16. Behold the hour. And remember when he says the hour, he means his death, his resurrection. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. Let's stop there. For the father is with me. I'm going to say it one time. Remember, Jesus is preparing them for the worst thing that will ever happen. The worst thing that will ever happen, the killing of holiness. The killing, this, the killing of the Son of God. If you weren't with us the last couple of weeks and we talked about, like, the, Jesus, it wasn't just a guy killed on the cross, right? God is holy. Jesus Christ, as God, is holy. And the reason they're killing him is because he's holy, his holiness revealed the evilness of their character, revealed their sin. So instead of facing that in their love of God, they completely rejected that holiness and thought, we've got to kill him or he's going to mess all of this up. They don't truly love God, so they are killing holiness on the cross. This is what Jesus is trying to prepare them for. And so in this moment, Jesus isn't trying to destroy their encouragement 
right? He's not just trying to bring them back down. He's preparing them for what's to come. So in this moment, he's telling them as plainly as he have that what is to come, my hour is, is going to be so bad. What's about to happen? My hour has come and is now here. He is going to be arrested and just a few hours from now is now here when not, it's going to be so bad that all of you are going to scatter. All of you are going to leave me. We know that what's about to happen is Peter, even Peter is going to deny Jesus three times and then he's going to abandon Jesus. And by the way, I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think right now, if you, you would ask Peter, he would still say, there is no way that would ever happen. I'll never leave Jesus. He believes it, but he's about to. Don't ever think you're better than, better than Peter and think you'd have done something different in this moment. Peter believed, just like some of you, this would never happen, but it happened. They're going to scatter and they're going to leave him. And Jesus can't let their false encouragement go on for when the moment came when the worst thing that will ever happen happened, it would just be all the worse if they felt like they got it and they didn't. Yet even here, in this moment, and we're going to see as it bridges into verse 33 in a second, yet even here, Jesus seems to be looking out for them. In some way, trying to ease their grief and suffering by saying to them, yet even in this, even though you're going to leave me alone, yet... I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. If only we could believe that too. He knows that he will never be abandoned, never. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. It doesn't matter what other people do. He'll never be abandoned. So once, once again, we see Jesus, and again, you, you, just with this verse 32, you might not see this as encouragement until we read verse 33 with it, right? So even in this moment with Jesus, who's about to go do the hardest thing, Take all of our sin, all of our evil, all of his father's wrath on, the, wrath on the cross, the hardest thing that will ever happen. He's still thinking about the disciples and what they're going to go through and trying to prepare them. Trying to prepare them and give them something to hold on to when just utter darkness comes. Church, before we bridge into verse 33 and see the kind of encouragement that Christ is really giving to them, even in their misgivings and missing it and everything else, um, church, I, I want us to take this moment to see this as a really example left by Christ and why our goal at Freshwater Church is not for you to come in every Sunday and have an amazing experience. You know, I don't bash other churches by name, but there was a church in our city that their motto, the motto of their church was 52 great experiences. 52 weeks of great experiences at church. And I just want you to know, this right here, this is the perfect example of why our, our goal here is not every week for you to leave super encouraged and super happy. Now, do you think I want you to be encouraged? Absolutely. I want you to leave a lot of weeks here super encouraged. I want you to be full of hope. I want you to leave here happy and excited some weeks. But listen, what Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples to live in a completely broken and lost world. He's not telling them what would make them feel better in this moment. He's preparing them for what's actually going to come so they'll be ready for it when it comes. And hear me, church, that is my job too. My job is to prepare you to be disciples of Christ in a lost and broken world. And sometimes that's going to be full of happiness and joy and all of these things. But sometimes the most loving thing I can possibly do is say the hard thing. And in this moment, the disciples are excited, and Jesus comes back up with some sobering comments about how they're all going to abandon him. And you know what? The hard thing in this moment was the loving thing. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just trying to follow in his example. So yes, I want you to be encouraged and have hope, but sometimes the hard thing is the loving thing. 
But here's the beautiful thing about our Savior. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Even in the hardest things, even in the worst things we can imagine, like the death of the Son of God, the darkness can never overcome just the brilliant radiance of the hope we find in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. It's be our last verse for today. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I want you to let that sink in for a second. Jesus just told them all these really hard things. And he has been preparing them for all of these really hard things that are about to happen. And why? So that in him they might have peace. This is why I said in this moment, even in this moment where Jesus is sobering this moment, saying you're all going to abandon me and all of these things, this is Jesus still in this moment looking out for them, saying, I'm saying all these things, I'm doing all these things so that you may have peace. So he has told them about his death, about persecution, about being hated, about the world rejoicing in their sorrow, or rejoicing at what causes them to lament and be sorrow. And he's just told them about how all of them are going to abandon him so they might have what? Peace. It's crazy, right? But that's what he's talking about. So they might have peace. He says, in me, you will have peace. And so if you haven't been with us, when Jesus says in me, what he's talking about is abiding in him. And that's something that we talked about in John 15, abiding in him, living in Jesus, believing in his promises, following his example, living for his glory, all of these things so you might bear fruit for his kingdom by recognizing who you are in him. This is what it means to abide in Jesus Christ to abide in his love as he abides in the Father's love. Jesus is about to go through the most difficult thing that will ever happen. What does Jesus have in these moments? He has peace. Why? Because he abides in the Father. And he wants you to abide in the Father in the same way. Church, the peace that it's talking about is not just avoiding difficult things. It's not just that we wouldn't have hardship, but this is a whole life fullness. The word that it goes back to in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is shalom. Shalom means a whole life fullness, a a life of blessing rooted in not avoiding the ups and downs of this world, but in a relationship with the almighty God who is peace, who is our peace, the kind of peace that Jesus has with the Father because he has absolute confidence in him. This is what Jesus wants for us. So Jesus isn't saying to the disciples and he isn't saying to us that we won't have trouble. Or the word that's used in verse 33 is tribulation. No, he says, this world is broken and that's not going to change until the day, and that's not, that's not going to change until the day Jesus returns. So what he's saying is that even in tribulation, even in suffering, in the hurt, and in the confusion that this life can bring, take heart. Right? Take heart, meaning don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't give in to anxiety. Don't give in to fear. But be encouraged. Even in the hardest things, church, even in the hardest things, be encouraged. And why can Jesus say this? Because he has overcome the world. Church, why do we give our sin so much power over us? I don't just mean when we actually sin, which we're giving into things that we shouldn't give it into, like we give into power, like we can't resist sin. But then for so many of us, when we give into the same sins or the same kinds of things that we've given into before, it affects us for days, hours, days, weeks, months after that. Like it ends up having so much power of us. Why do we give sin so much power? 
Why do we give worldly desires and worldly things so much sway over our lives, over our hearts, over what we think about all the time? Why do we give the enemy so much credit? We, I mean, we have a powerful enemy who the Bible calls the ruler of this world. But why, if we have the kind of savior that we have, why do we give him so much credit? Why do we let suffering overwhelm us? And if you're suffering right now, I realize that can be a hard thing to hear and we love you. And if you're in the midst of suffering, we're not saying be better. We wanna come alongside you and help lift you up and walk through suffering with you. But we, get, we give suffering so much power, we let it overwhelm us that sometimes we let it go on for so long that the suffering becomes such a part of us, we don't know how to live without the suffering. When God wants us to live in joy and freedom and peace, but suffering becomes who we are because we hold on to it so tightly. Why do we let suffering completely overwhelm us? Why do we live a life as if, we, as if the fight for holiness is so daunting and so burdensome that it just feels out of reach? Jesus has already overcome the world. He has already defeated sin. Did you, do you hear that? Because I don't think, at least a lot of you, I don't think you believe that. Jesus has already defeated the power of sin. He has already destroyed the power of our enemy. This isn't something he is primarily, primarily doing in us. This is something that he's already done for us. It's already done Yes, church, we are being transformed. Yes, we are being sanctified day by day into the image of Jesus Christ from one glory to another. Yes and amen. Yes, but our fight is not to attain something primarily. Our fight isn't even really to defeat something. Our fight is to really and truly believe and live in the truth of what has already been done. That has already been done. The victory has already been won on your behalf. All you need to grow The primary thing you need to grow is to live in these truths that have already been accomplished. Oh my gosh, church, what if we actually lived in this thing? What if we actually believed this? Like we started off today, right, with with the game analogy. How differently would all of your mistakes and your bad passes and your missed shots and all, all the things that you did wrong, how much different would that look if you knew victory was already assured no matter what you did? That, that your bad shots were something that you could just let go of. Again, you're going to be frustrated by it. It's going to set you back a little bit. You're going to be like, dang it, right? If you miss a shot in a big game, it doesn't even matter if you know you're going to win. You're going to hit that shot. You, you want to do the right thing. You want to hit the shot. You're still going to be frustrated. But how much different would it be if you're like, this is already overcome. We've already overcome this team. We already know we're going to win. Man, you move on from that shot. You get frustrated and then you move forward. Church, in the same way, this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. How much quicker do you think you could move on from your sins and your spiritual shortcomings if you actually looked at, the, at it through the lens of the gospel? To what Jesus Christ is actually teaching you. How much more hope do you think you'd have in your sufferings and your spiritual battles if you operated from victory, not for victory, not to attain victory? Hear me, church. I, I, don't, I don't want you to be confused about what I'm saying. We are absolutely in a war against our sin and the spiritual forces arrayed against us. Absolutely we are. We have to fight against those things. We have to war against those things. We have to work to strive to kill our sin, but not because if you, if you strive hard enough or you fight hard enough, you're going to conquer your sin and you're going to accomplish holiness. That is a losing battle. 
That's why so often you feel like you're not good enough or like you're not attaining enough or you're not moving forward enough because we treat the spiritual battle as if something, if we just believe enough and we fight hard enough, we're gonna accomplish this. No, what we really need to understand and fight for is the reality that Christ has already won those victories. That's how we fight. That's who we fight with. We fight with the one who overcomes. We fight as people who have already won. The Bible has a lot to say on this topic. I picked three verses. Do we have them over there, Denver? Let's look at the first one. This is John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. This is what he said in 1 John 4, 4, just echoing the words of Christ. Little children, you are from God, meaning you are the children of God and have overcome them. Them meeting Satan, sin, those who commit evil, You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When the Bible talks about he who is in the world or rules over this world, the Bible is talking about Satan and his demon as the ruler of this world. Look at Ephesians 2 if you want to look it up. The one who is in you, who is who? Jesus Christ. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. He says more about this in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Right, again, the world here meaning sin and worldly desires and Satan and his demons and even suffering, right? Suffering is bred out of evil. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Right, believing in the truth of the gospel, our testimony in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, and what he continues to do, that victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? By our faith, by our testimony in Jesus Christ, we overcome the world. Here's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, one from one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, really. And this is one from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. You've heard it in this church before. You're going to hear it a lot more times. Verse, Romans 8, 37. Know in all these things, these things being suffering and persecution and hardship and the attacks of our enemy and the attacks of our own sinful flesh and own sinful de- de- our own sinful desires. Know in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Stop right there. Do you, do you realize what that's saying? It's even better than what we've talked about. He's saying that you're more than conquerors, meaning you've already conquered. In Jesus Christ, you, through Jesus Christ, who conquered these things, you have already conquered, meaning you have already overcome. But here, and the, and the point is here, is not that you've overcome. He's saying it's more than the fact that you've, you've already overcome. It's more than you're just conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, that means rulers in the, in the heavenly places, Satan and his demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, what if we believe just that? What if we believed just that? Church, we just don't operate in in the fact that that's the truth. What if we actually believe these things, church? What if we walked in the truth of these things? What if we didn't see our failure to serve and love God as evidence of how awful we are? Or how how hard it is to be holy, but saw it for what it, it actually is? A lack in faith of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And that we turned to him, believed what he said, 
and then just moved forward. Church, can you even imagine the power in our lives if we saw this rightly? What if we didn't see our sin and our worldliness as evidence of how much we suck? And listen, that's a crass word. I try not to use crass words from the front, but that's so often, maybe not all of you in this room, but so often I talk to you, man, what I, I actually hear from you is that, that I suck, but I'm trying. Hear me, just can we sit with that for a second? Do you think that's what Christ wants you to walk in and want you to feel on a daily basis? Yeah, you do suck, but I love you. Is that what scripture communicates? Because so often in churches, I even hear that when we talk about sin, it is like, you suck, but praise God, Jesus loves you. And so we start to believe that, yes, I suck, but, but Jesus loves me, so hopefully I can start to move forward. What if we didn't see our sin that way? What if we didn't see our worldliness as evidence of how much we suck, but as an opportunity to be reminded of the power of Jesus Christ? As a beautiful, almost conceivable picture of God's grace for us. As an opportunity, right? Even our sin, see it as an opportunity to right the ship, to repent to God. And I mean meaningful repentance for the ugliness of sin and then turn back to God and then run. Listen, church, not walk, but run into the amazing hope and the joy and the grace and the mercy and the power that Jesus Christ has promised us. How many of you live that way? Even when you fail. Yes, we take our sin seriously. Yes, it is ugly. It is evil. It is horrible. But what if we saw our sin for what it was, but then saw the gospel for what it was? We sing songs like his mercy is more. Our sin is terrible, but his mercy is more. Do you actually believe that? Do you know how hard it's been for me in my life to believe that? I preach this all the time, and it's so hard for me to actually believe that because I've, I've, I've walked in the same sins and the same worldliness over and over, and it just feels like I've done it once too much. I just suck too much. What have I actually believed his mercy is more? What if sin wasn't always viewed as this enormous step back? but a powerful reminder of where we need to step next. What if sin was a reminder of where we need to step forward into Jesus Christ? I had a conversation with someone this week, and if you don't understand this, you probably need more context, so I'm going to say it anyway, because I'm going off script. This is dangerous. Almost nothing, not nothing, but almost nothing in my life has drove me to the truth of who Jesus Christ is than my ad former addiction to pornography. Because it reminded me all the time, I am not enough. And in a lot of ways, I think I am enough. I operate in this world like I am enough. But through this addiction that I couldn't get free of myself, one step at a time, I went from, oh my gosh, I suck, to a little bit of time actually believing the gospel. And so even my, in my failures, seeing it rightly through the gospel, it reminded me of who I am without Jesus, but who I could be in Jesus. And believing when he says, listen, like I know that I hate your sin, but I have set you free. I have attained victory over this. You don't believe it, but it's true. Come. 
Don't take a step back. Take a step forward towards me, and I will set you free. It's already overcome. Believe it, and you can move past it. And I am no longer, listen, I am not addicted to pornography. I'm not addicted at all. I'm not a slave to those things. I'm not perfect. I'm tempted like everybody else as your pastor. But I am not, I am not addicted. I am not a slave to those things because I have been set free in Christ. He overcame in me, and he can overcome whatever it is. But stop looking at your sin as you suck or a step back, but seeing it rightly. I committed a sin against a holy and righteous God. This is not who I am. This is not who I want to be. Jesus Christ, forgive me. Help me to understand the gospel and move forward in your power so this doesn't happen again. And you know what you'll find? Less and less will you walk into those same sins. Less and less will you be that same person because you will be transformed, not by trying to win the game of holiness, but understanding that Jesus Christ has already made you holy. Everything that you need to be holy has already been accomplished. Walk in victory. Walk forward. I know it feels, for some of you, I know it feels almost wrong to like, it's like you're making light of your sin. Do you know that they accused Paul of the same thing? They accused Paul of making light of sin. What are you saying? Well, to sin so grace can abound all the more? And Paul's like, no. How can us who love Jesus Christ still walk in the same sins? So listen, this is a dangerous thing to preach. It was a dangerous thing for Paul to preach, but, but this is the reality. We sin, we see it, we hate it, we try to kill it, and then we move forward, letting it go, moving forward to the upper call of God, forgetting what lies behind, moving forward to the upper call of God. That's what God wants for you, church. What if we believed it? Can you imagine if we believed this, how we would be set free? But we don't believe it. So this is why at the beginning I started off praying, God, help us. We're not going to believe this thing. We're not going to believe it without you intervening on our behalf because sin and the evilness of this world and our own condemnation is just too strong. But there's a reason Romans 8 said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you set your minds on the flesh, you're going to think about the things of the flesh and you're going to act in the flesh. But if you set your mind on things of the spirit, you will have life and peace for, for things of the flesh is death. You're covering the holiness in you with death when you chase the world in sin. It doesn't mean you suck. It means you're covering it with death when Jesus is promising you life, goodness, and righteousness, and holiness, and love, and patience, and gentleness, and goodness, and all of these things. You're covering it with death. How about trying to burn all that death away with the power of the Holy Spirit by believing the promises? By believing the promises. Where can you step forward into the love and the grace and the power of the one who has overcome the world and who has placed that same power in all of you. Worship team, come on up. This is what I want us all to think about. And do me a favor, because maybe this is just me, because I'm, I'm so ADD. Don't pay attention to them setting up. Stay right here with me. Not because I'm so important, because this truth, is, um, this is a life-changing, radical kind of truth if we could just hold on to it. This is what I want you to think about and pray about and talk to God about right now. What if in like the big game that we talked about, you truly lived as if victory has already won? So you could forget the mistakes, so that you could let go of the failures and just move forward in the one who has overcome it all. Yes, we take sin seriously. Yes, we feel the weight of it. 
and we fight against it. And as I said last week, we kill it. We don't avoid sin. We kill sin, yes. But what if we believed the power of the cross? What if we believed in the victory that was achieved there to overcome these things so that we might see our sin for the ugliness that it is? But we saw with even more clarity, more power, the beauty of the gospel to overcome that, that ugliness and turn it into something beautiful. So normally what I do, church, is I close with prayer. We're going to do something a little different. Today I'm going to close with a scripture reading. And then we're going to roll right into song. I, I don't know if you realize this, but the songs that we sing, they're really just prayers set to music. And, and the reason we, we sing is not only scripture tells us to sing, like sing spiritual songs, sing out together. But this is a chance for us to pray together, to song, to cry out to God together. And so our first song that we're singing right after this is, is rooted directly in the passage that I'm going to close with today. So I'm going to read it. And then let's just cry out together to God for something that we can just simply can't accomplish on our own, something that we need the Holy Spirit to move and ask him to make this true in our lives. And listen, if you need to stay right where you are and just pray, if you need to get on your knees right where you are and just pray, or I'm going to be in the back, I think my wife's going to join me, somebody else will probably be back there, you can come back there and we would love to pray over you, pray with you, listen to you, have you pray, whatever. If you need to pray, man, take the time to talk with God, because listen, this all happens by abiding in Christ, and that is rooted in your relationship with him, driven by knowing the word of God, truth, and prayer coming together. So if you need to stop and pray about these things, man, take the time to pray. But otherwise, I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to cry out in song together. This comes from Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered. Hear the truth of that church, not conquering. And they have conquered him, meaning Satan and sin and his tools of suffering and death. And they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, their faith in the gospel. For they loved not their lives even unto death, meaning Christ was more important than it all. One more time, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Church, let's cry out to God together.